Hey, it's another edition of Retire Smarter. Walter Storholt back with Kevin Krosky today, President and Wealth Advisor at True Wealth Design, serving you in Northeast Ohio, Southwest Florida, and the greater Pittsburgh area. You can find Kevin online at truewealthdesign.com. Kevin, it is great to be with you this week. How are you, my friend? Well, it's always my pleasure. Um, I'm good. You know, we're recording uh, about a week out from Hurricane Ian, uh, really decimating Southwest Florida, which, you know, is probably many listening to this know, you know, my family and I live. Thankfully, at this point in time, we're uh, in Ohio and uh, happy to be here. And, you know, while we heard that our our home in Southwest Florida didn't sustain any damage, we have had some people staying there uh, because we have a generator and it was kind of, you know, safe and, and more inland. You know, a lot of our friends and a lot of people, as you can see from the news reports, were, you know, utterly I mean, whether it's the death or destruction, you name it, um, really sad to see. I mean, unfortunately, these storms are inevitable, particularly in places like that. And, you know, with the warming that we have, um, it seems like those are increasing. But um, really sad to see what happened for sure. Yeah, devastating. And, um, you know, the power of the storms is just incredible to see. And it's just the the worst when it heads through populated areas like that and areas that just haven't taken that many strikes in the last you know, 50 years. Uh, but, you know, they, they do happen. And, uh, boy, just devastating images out of there. But glad to hear that you guys are are okay and, and were away and didn't have to even experience really the storm in person and that the house came out okay as well. So glad to, to have you back here on the podcast and uh, thankful that we're able to chat with you and get some good knowledge about financial education and information today, Kevin. And uh, looking forward to our topic today, a bit of a follow-up to episode 108, our most recent one, where we had a little bit of fun talking our REM on the podcast. Uh, that that was a, a little bit out of left field. Didn't see that one coming, Kevin. So that was fun last time around. The end of the world as we know it, yet uh, why we felt fine about uh, the economy and, and maybe our finances and looking at things from that macro level. And you want to expand on that a little bit more today, right? Yeah, I do. You know, as you, Walt, as you mentioned that, and we were just talking about Hurricane Ian, you know, maybe it's, you know, forgive me if this is kind of a, a bad analogy, but, um, and, and again, this is not to uh, diminish any of the tragedy that people are suffering, but, um, you know, we talked about last episode about kind of this creative destruction process, and maybe that's not a great way to phrase what's going on with Ian. But when you think about, um, you know, kind of what's going to happen, you know, building codes are going to change. Homes that were single story, maybe built in the 1950s um, now, maybe aren't just going to be raised, but maybe they're even going to be raised more. They're going to be more reinforced. And so, you know, I don't have any doubt that Southwest Florida is going to be able to back stronger. And this is going to be an ever-present issue to deal with. But, you know, things will change. You know, there's a ton of destruction. Um, very, very sad, very much a tragedy. But but nonetheless, I think we're going to build back stronger for those reasons as as we have over time. And um, last time when we were talking about REM and you know why it makes sense to be long term, you know, rationally optimistic for that matter, we also talked about that process of creative destruction that Joseph Schumpeter, you know, if I can do my best pronunciation there, which is pretty <laughs> terrible, I know. Um, but you know that that's the process that's ca- what capitalism is built on. You know, it's there's yes, there's winners or losers, and it feels terrible to be on the. Um, destructed rather than the constructed side. Uh, but in aggregate, our, our economy and, um, 
our society grows wealthier. Uh, and it's kind of a separate and tangential question about, well, you know, do we provide some sort of safety nets, you know, to um, uh, the society and to the people that comprise it in general, maybe to help make that creative destruction process a little bit less, you know, destructive to those people's individual lives. But again, nonetheless, um, that process does create more wealth for people over time. It takes you know resources to hire and better use, creates more opportunity, creates more profits, you know, creates returns in the marketplace. And for us as investors, and and you know, the whole podcast is really about retiring smarter. Um, and what I wanted to touch on today was okay, you know, we know that it makes sense. Uh, we have all this evidence supporting that it makes sense to be long-term optimistic, um, but we do have this kind of creative destruction process in the markets. So how should we really kind of think about that in, in terms of really implementing our retirement investment portfolio? So uh, we were kind of up in the clouds last time. You know, I was listening to REM and being all happy-go-lucky um, <laughs> despite the, you know, the lyrics. And now I want to try to bring it down on the runway today. Okay. We, we were at 30,000 feet cruising along, uh, listening to the white noise of the plane, popped in the headphones and got a little music going, got the REM. Now, now we've landed at the airport and it's, and we're, we're back to reality and, and kind of our own lives again. Yeah, well, we're circling the airport, so it's my job okay. over the next right. twenty minutes or so to, to oh, you're going make to sure I do a safe landing. landing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and, and if I crash and burn, that's why. That's why you're the warning of my buffet, and you're, you're here to get me on track. Okay, buddy. Captain Krosky is what you are today, and I guess I'm in the control tower, just just help helping you out if you run into any troubles. <laughs> All right, so um, so kind of a key point number one, if you will, if I can set this up. So when you think about saving for retirement and you know we have our episode 45 goes through our retire smarter solution it really is the process that we use here internally to take you know a new client um, through that process and help get clarity and confidence and make sure that everything that they have is aligned to go ahead and support the lifestyle that they want to lead in retirement and we kind of overlay that with a tax smart um uh, planning strategy as well uh, so that's all there but really what we're going to focus on is just the investment portion today and specifically about this sort of creative destruction process. And some of the things you'll hear about, you know, if, if you've read at all about investing or maybe you've even taken, you know, kind of taken another step beyond just casually reading, but maybe even taken a course, you know, a college course or online or whatever the case may be, you know, you'll hear some things about like average returns or, you know, volatility or, you know, the um, kind of statistical term standard deviation, which I prefer to call the wiggle factor or just how that's you know, my the, favorite, the wiggle yeah, factor. The, the wiggle factor, right? Um, you know, what do the ups and downs look like? And all those are important, but those um, those really are kind of a little bit short-sighted when you think about retirement. So when you think about, when I think about retirement, you know, it really is, you know, that lifestyle. People become to a certain level of lifestyle. Maybe they even want to increase it in retirement once they have, you know, more time on their side. And maybe they've done a pretty good job of saving, investing, and living below their means so they can do that. So to me, it's not about the investment part isn't necessarily and or I would say isn't solely about, you know, those traditional things that people think about when it comes to investments. But it's really making sure that we have enough dollars to do what you need to do when you want to do. It. Think in terms of dollars more than anything. And, and when we think about, you know, really taking this a step further, if we do kind of weave back in that sort of investment, you know, education that maybe somebody 
would go through. So rather than the wiggle factor of volatility, rather than the you know standard deviation, or rather than average returns, and we did an episode on this, and I think this is, may have been <laughs> when the Egghead Alert was first created. I'm not exactly sure about this wallet, but it was it Terminal the Origin Story. Wealth Dispersion <laughs> in oh, episode yes. 67. I think um, you're right. Said much more plainly, it's having the money when you need it. Um, so you know, it's it's about having those dollars, you know, when you need it. So so that's kind of the setup here. But those are some of the key points and how we need to think about investments as it relates to retirement. And you know, when we had uh, a, a kind of transition here to the next you know, point, but uh, when we had Dr. Michael Finca on earlier in the year, which I think is still like one of the highest rated episodes, uh, which was a two-parter that we've done, I still get a lot of feedback on that. And I actually saw um, Dr. Finca at a conference last week, and uh, he did a fantastic job oh, in a continuing education session that I was in of his. But um, one of the things we talked about uh, on that episode and then as kind of a follow-along was it was a certain types of risks. So something called, and again, I'm going to use an egghead word here, but and then I'll explain it in plain English, but uh, it's something that he says is kind of idiosyncratic. Um, so I'll, <laughs> I'm kind of waiting. Anytime I say one of these words, Walt, I'm I'm, I have a little trepidation it's that it's you. coming. I don't know if I'm hoping, but I'm a little scared. And I've, and I've, I mean, I, I've you, heard you've of laid off syncratic the, before. I've, I've, I've heard of it before. Maybe I'm getting smarter listening to the show, so I'm not triggering the egghead alert anymore. Hey, hey, I like it. I might have to find a new Warren to my Buffett if you're becoming me, buddy. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I've reached that status quite yet, but, uh, but yeah, maybe I'm just feeling more. I'm feeling a little smarter. So there you go. So, so if in in English, it's kind of a unique or specifics. Uh, think of those terms. It's unique, and we think of this in terms of risk generally in the investment world. It's unique or specific risk. So there's can be good examples of this, and then bad examples of this. And uh, forgive me for the crass analogy, but rather than idiosyncratic, I'm going to call the bad examples idiot syncratic. Not that I'm calling anybody an idiot, not that I'm trying to offend anybody. I know the whole world is sensitive and overly sensitive these days, but it just works. I, I got, you know, I, if somebody else has another suggestion about how I can, I can use idio to get to a uh, contrast without using idiot, uh, I'm all for the suggestion. So kind of quick disclaimer there. But the good part of having idiosyncratic or unique risks in your portfolio, unique uh, risks, is that it does lean towards this diversification. So, you know, we're talking about this kind of constructed or destructive process, and we want to make sure that we have, you know, the dollars that we need in retirement. So a good example of having unique or specific risks are in the portfolio or having different um, types of asset classes, very broad asset classes. So think of like uh, a school of fish. You know, you could have a school of fish of, uh, man, Walt, you're going to have to help me with my types of fish here. But okay. um, <laughs> what types of fish can we have at different schools? I don't know. Let's use, hey, we got one school of fish that's yellow and another school of fish that's red. How about that? <laughs> okay. Let's keep it you, simple. You made it really simple. All right. <laughs> yes. Um, I was going to try and trigger the egghead alert on myself and like drop the Latin names for, you know, some type of fish or something like that. But no, we'll go with red and yellow. That's yeah. Good. I'm not going to demonstrate my lack of knowledge in the fish area, but I mean, tuna, uh, tuna salmon, maybe something like that. <laughs> red and yellow fish. So, you know, they're, they're both fish. And then you have these individual fish within those schools of red and yellow that are all different too. So, you know, the red fish are different from the yellow fish. Okay. Pretty clear to see something like that. Um, so broadly speaking, analogous on the investment markets. Um, so you could say like stocks and bonds are two different 
schools of fish, if you will. Um, so, uh, or something that we've at least touched on in a few episodes this year, and we've talked a lot to our clients, you know, something we call like a systematic trend strategy. It's very different. You know, those all have different or unique risks that, you know, sometimes can be correlated to each other, like we've seen with stocks and bonds this year, but over longer periods or other periods, they're not correlated with one another. Um, and the trend following in general is not correlated or doesn't, you know, has no relationship in its, its price movement to the other two. So when you have different schools of fish and they all have positive expected returns, that's the other key point here, positive expected returns, um, then ultimately you're going to have more of a, um, an all-weather sort of strategy to your portfolio. You know, if something zigs, you're going to have something else in the portfolio that's hopefully zagging and going to smooth out returns overall. You can take this down to another level if you're looking within the school of fish. So if you think about having stocks, well, you could get into like, okay, now let's look within, you know, that school of fish and say, okay, you have big stocks, little stocks, um, you know, or small company stocks. You could have domestic or foreign. You could have, you know, companies that are cheap, other companies that are high growth, things like that. But they're still have very common characteristics of the type uh, uh, that they are and they're stocks. Um, so you kind of think of kind of the very broad level, the school fish level, and then you could start drilling down. So that's uh, what I would call, you know, kind of a good type of unique risks or those in idiosyncratic risks. The bad type um, if, is if you're kind of having a focused stock strategy, for example. I'll give a couple examples here. And this is something we talked about in that episode 67 and just kind of going through like, hey, how many stocks do you really need in a portfolio to be diversified? And, and again, that's where we got into this concept of, well, how are we defining diversification? Are we defining in terms of having a lower wiggle factor or more appropriately, in my view, are we defining it in a term of having the likely having the dollars that we need when we need it, a.k.a terminal wealth dispersion. Uh, so, you know, if you look at just individual stocks, they have their own company specific risks and those risks are not compensated for. You're just taking more risk without any expectation of additional return. Um, said another way, you're kind of introducing some other risks to it, you know, beyond that sort of individual company risk. What, you know, the academics or what my teachers in grad school would call security selection risk. It's a few different names, but Long and short of it is, if you're not well diversified, if you don't have a very you know broad diversification, if you don't have some different you know schools of fish rather than just fish having fish within the same school, then you're exposing yourself to this you know you know idiosyncratic risks of these company specific risks, which I am therefore renaming idiot syncratic risk because you're taking more risk and there's no compensation for it. You're just trying mm. to in introduce a luck factor, if you will. Now, most people don't think that they're doing that. You know, they're, you know, they may have all kinds of different ideas. Um, investing in individual stocks has been around for a long time before the advent of mutual funds. It could be something that's more almost hereditary that they got from, you know, mom or dad or grandma or grandpa and just been doing a long time. You know, if I go back maybe, you know, 40 years ago, maybe you could make a case or 30 years ago, maybe you could make a case that, hey, you know, if I buy these individual stocks and I have enough of them, well, I don't have to pay these, you know, mutual fund fees um, that are just going to kind of suck away some of my return. I would argue about that even looking back, say, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but nonetheless, today, I mean, you can buy mutual funds or ETFs, you know, pretty darn close to free. So there's really no 
you know, point in that argument today. So I think a lot of this is just more inertia than anything. It's just the way that people maybe have done it before. And so it's the way that they still do it in terms of picking individual stocks. Uh, but again, if you're just having 10 or 20 or 30 in the portfolio, um, more likely than not, you know, it's not going to work out so well. And I'll give some evidence to that here in a moment. I liked your explanation of the idiosyncratic risk. It reminds me of whenever Connie and I go hiking and we're on the edge of a cliff and I feel like I need to take two more steps closer to the edge of the cliff. Like for some reason, the view is going to get that much better from just those two steps. And she's like, please step back away. Your middle name is accident waiting to happen. Step away from the edge of the cliff. You're not improving the experience at all. You're just stressing everybody out. Move away from the cliff. I, that, I'm taking idiot syncretic risk. There's no extra payoff for that extra step closer to the edge. Doesn't change the view. Doesn't give. There's no payoff. There's no benefit to that extra chance of slipping and falling. So. I like that. I, 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 I pick up on what you're talking about with the idiot syncretic risk. That's good, Walt. I, I like yeah. that as well. Um, so a few, few bullet points here on kind of evidence supporting what I'm saying. So, um, so JP Morgan had a study that they did for U.S. stock returns from the period 1980 to 2014. I love the title of this uh, paper. It was called The Agony and the Ecstasy, The Risks and Rewards of a Concentrated Stock Position. Um, and <laughs> That, that almost deserves to say uh, egghead alert on its own just for the long title. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it was, you know, it's great the way that they phrase it, though, because, you know, it really goes to it. Yeah, sure. I mean, you could have on the probability, as we'll see here, and as I've always already conveyed, but I'll support with some some numbers. It's more so the agony, but you can take company specific risk and be ecstatic about it because maybe it pays off. But that's more of a luck factor. <laughs> and for anybody that's you know seriously investing in their retirement dollars, um, I just don't think luck is a very good investment strategy. If anything, you know, if it's a hobby account or something and it's kind of a play account and it's a very small subset of what you have and you can afford to lose it, you know, that's fine. You know, that's one thing. We have several clients to do that. But if that is your the core of your retirement strategy, again, I mean, that's not it's not anything that I would ever do with my money or advise a client to do. And it's just, uh, it's kind of foolhardy uh, in my view. Um, so in that study, one of the things that they said was, and they were looking at the Russell 3000. So broadly speaking, kind of the largest 3000 US stocks, you know, quite a bit. Um, and they said using that universe since 1980, roughly 40% of all stocks, 40%, pretty big number have suffered a permanent 70% plus decline from their peak value. Permanent, 40%. Wow. Pretty darn close to half, right, Walt? That's not good. That's not good. Um, so kind of a little bit more broadly, I'll give a few other points here from other studies. And, and you're uh, not just talking like random, risky, I mean, you know, it's all risky, but not random, like, you know, fly-by-night type of companies. You're talking about, you know, kind of the top 3,000, right? Yeah, top 3,000, you know, the, everybody's heard of the S&P 500 and, and Russell, which is another investment company and a large kind of index provider. Um, you know, the Russell 1000 are, are generally large U.S. companies, and then they have the Russell 2000, which they consider kind of the small and mid. So you put those two together and that's, you know, 2000 plus 1000 is the 3000. So sure, there's, um, if you dig into it, there's going to be more turnover and what have you in the smaller companies. But just like we talked about last time, um, at the tail end of our episode, we went through like how the largest companies, you know, fell off, you know, that list and weren't 
large anymore. Um, and so, it, again, it's just that process of creative destruction. Sure, maybe the larger companies have a little bit more staying power a little bit longer than the small companies do, but it happens to them too. So they're not immune from that. Another paper called The Capitalism Distribution. Uh, this was by an asset management company called Longboard. Also looked at the Russell 3000, different time period, 83 through 2006. So there's a somewhat of an overlap here with the JP Morgan study um, in terms of time, um, but uh, similar sort of findings, which you would part inspect for, expect from that. But some of the ways that Longboard conveyed this was only 25% of the stocks were responsible for all, not some, but all of the market's gains. And nearly two thirds underperformed the broad index. Two thirds underperformed the broad index. Uh, and then lastly, 39% uh, of these stocks lost money. So almost similar to what I just said about 40% of all stocks having suffered a permanent decline from the JP Morgan study, said another way, um, related, but slightly different, similar percentage lost money. So you just start looking at evidence like this. And to me, I mean, it's, it's plain to see. It's like, okay, why do I want to go ahead and try to pick those individual stocks and then put the risk of me not being able to meet uh, you know, my dollar goals for retirement right. or it could be college or, or something else for that matter? But why would I want to put that at risk? Um, so a couple other things, and I'll kind of beat this into the ground like a tomato stick. Uh, there's uh, a guy that's done a lot of research, um, I think a lot of good research, Hendrik Bessembinder. Um, he did a study in 2017 and says, do stocks outperform treasury bills? So if anybody's not familiar, treasury bills are basically kind of cash-like investments. They're very short. He went back over a much longer time period, 1926 through 2015, and looked at all the stocks that were listed on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, NASDAQ, and the Amex. And um, when he was comparing to just cash, he found uh, somewhat similarly to the others, but only about 42% of stocks had a return greater than cash, one month treasury bills. A lot more risk, well, stocks versus cash, I'd say, but only 42% yeah. of stocks had a greater return than one month treasury bills, AKA cash. And in terms of the time that stocks are generally listed, uh, he found that they were generally listed or you know publicly traded, if you will, for a little bit more than seven years. And he said only 36 stocks were present in the database for the full 90 years, 1926 through 2015. So again, the implication is, I think, pretty striking. So there's been, you know, everybody's heard it, Walt, and I'll, I'll put you on the, I've done this to you, I don't know how many times over the years we've been recording this, but on average, Walt, what do U.S. stocks return over the long run? Uh, 10%. Boom. Good job, Walt. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. You're the warrant to my Buffett once again. I, um, I, I was waiting for a math question, but. Uh... Yeah, it's about 10%. It's, you know, it's a little bit higher if we kind of look at the end of, you know, 2021 before kind of the, uh, the fall off that we've had this year, but round numbers call 10%. However, even though those are sizable returns, you can create a significant amount of wealth compounding that over time. You know, it's it's really coming from a very small subset of stocks that kind of changes over time, and on average, you know, a, a good majority of those stocks underperform and provide returns, you know, less than that broad market. So again, uh, it was uh, about two thirds of the stocks in the long board study. 
And, uh, and, it, and those not only underperformed the index, but a lot of those about 40% lost money, you know, so literally destroyed your capital, destroyed your wealth, destroyed your dollars. So, you know, let's kind of take a step back and, and look at this for a moment. So again, um, capitalism creates wealth, you know, this creative destruction process creates winners and losers. Um, the winners tend to win a lot and the losers, which are actually a bigger subset of the stocks that we can invest in in the public markets, um, lose. So, you know, unless you have that crystal ball about which stocks to pick, then, you know, it doesn't seem very rational to go ahead and take a, a strategy based approach where you're trying to select these individual stocks in a very concentrated fashion. Uh, makes sense so far, Walt? It makes sense so far. Yeah, I like it. All right. So one other if thing you, I'll mention. you can ask all questions in multiples of 10, I have a feeling I can get future answers right as well. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so in multiples of 10. So I, I can't use the English um, system, but I have to stay in metric for you. Is there that you what you're go. saying? That's right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Exactly. Got it. Um, so one other thing. So what's another implication of this? So if we take this a little bit further and uh, we just look at, um, so whether it's an ETF or a mutual fund um, that's trying to pick individual stocks. So let's look at how the pros do. So we already talked about what happens broadly speaking in, you know, for these individual stocks in the, in the index, you know, whether it's the S&P, whether it's the Russell 3000, so on and so forth. But if we take it a step further and look at um, actively managed mutual funds, you know, professionals that do this day in, day out, you know, that have a lot of education, uh, that have a lot of resources, that often wear a lot of nice suits and drive expensive cars for that matter. How have they done? Well, anybody can look up this data. Um, you, it's, if you just type in SPIVA, S-P-I-V-A, um, it's, uh, the standard and pours, it's, it's called an active and passive scorecard. So they basically measure how do the actively managed funds do to a passively managed benchmark like a Russell 3000, like an S&P 500, you know, like, um, you know, an international index if they're internationally invested, so on and so forth. So the data that I'll share is as of the end of the year, 2021. So what um, uh, Standards and Poor's found is over the last three years, 72% underperformed of these actively managed, actively managed funds underperformed in absolute terms, and even more, 80% underperformed when they measured by risk-adjusted returns. So the risk was measured in the wiggle factor. And if we extend that a little bit longer for the 10-year period, so let's give them a little bit more time. How did they do over 10 years? Well, it actually got worse. 86% underperformed on an absolute basis and 93% on a risk-adjusted basis. Uh, the number actually even gets a little bit higher for 20 years. So, and we've seen this time and again. I mean, we've been doing this, um, you know, quite some time. I started the firm in late 2007. I'm looking at our dashboard here in front of me on my screen, and we have certain holdings where clients have, you know, whether it's a hobby account or whether it is, um, we call it a legacy security, maybe something that has a really low tax basis. And we're kind of just holding for different reasons, at least for a period of time. And we mark these as unmanaged in our database. And, um, you know, I can't talk about like performance numbers or anything like that on the podcast for like our portfolios. But I, what I can say is that the unmanaged holdings have significantly, significantly larger losses uh, than what the portfolios do, um, in part because of the diversification, you know, that we've been talking about over this episode. So the evidence is there, you know, ignore it at your own peril. Um, but if we're talking about investing your retiring, 
meant dollars and making sure that you can live the lifestyle that you want to live, then um, I can't see a better way to do it than making sure that we're only taking risks that we're being compensated for and diversifying away the ones that can be diversified. Uh, retirement is not time to try to take a lucky approach to your investment planning. Um, it's really time to be prudent, play the probabilities, and make sure you have the money when you need it. Well, helpful episode, I think, here, Kevin, to uh, drill down a little bit. You've lined the plane up well. You're coming in. You've got no crosswind. I think you just had a very nice, smooth landing. Wheels are wheels are down. Well done. The, the crowd is applauding. You landed the plane for us. So, All right. You know, it's always um, when I'm on those planes and they, they cheer when the pilot <laughs> lands the plane. I don't know. I kind of like it. It's it's. Cheesy in a way, but um, you know. Oh, I was, thought you were. I thought you were going to bash it. No, you're you're a fan. No, of, you're I a fan like of it. Cheer. I'm like, yeah, yeah, good job. <laughs> you know? If you think about it, you just took 300 humans in a small tube through the air at 500 miles an hour and landed it on a thin strip of asphalt and somehow brought it all to a stop. And you didn't even have to like get out of the plane onto the tarmac. There's even a little tunnel that then takes you into a nice, comfortable airport. So. That that feat is pretty amazing every time it happens. You know? Yeah, ever since we started traveling with our kids, and you know they're four and nine now. I mean, they always cheer at the end. They're like, "Yeah," and it's so sweet. Um, so is... maybe I'm partly influenced by their sweetness and cheering for them. But um, I agree, we should we should give them a good old cheer. So well, here we go. I don't I don't think you're human if you're not at least on the inside cheering every time you drop out of the sky and are <laughs> yes. still alive to walk around. I mean, I, I personally every time I'm like, "Whew, made it." I mean, that's something to cheer about right there. So. <laughs> I love it. But, uh, but yes, some, some sweet reasons as well when you've got some young ones. You know, that's just one thing. Like flying on a plane, travel, it just never loses. I mean, maybe if you're doing it for business, obviously, it's not always super exciting. But just in general, any sort of flight trip, it just, that just doesn't lose its magic. You know, there's just that sense of adventure is always stoked a little bit when you go to the airport and you fly somewhere. Oh, yeah, I can take issue with that wall. It's, um, we, Eddie, hey, how was your flight? I'm like, well, we got here in one piece, but yeah, yeah that's I mean, true. for, for the kids, yeah, they, they definitely enjoy it. We had okay. that real quick and we can, I'll, wrap I'll knock up. on wood. I've had some really, I, I've really not ever had an extremely terrible flight situation before. Only one, but then I rented a car and I drove home instead and it all was fine the next day, but. We had, um, we had a recent bad experience with our travel and our kids uh-huh. and the gate agent, was um uh well I would I would I'd use the first letter of the alphabet and then followed up with um, a four letter word whole and mm. um and it, it totally was and um long story short I mean they closed the the gate like basically right on us we were <laughs> and the the sky bridge or whatever was filled with people we weren't holding up um, the plane I, you know I got four year old and the plane was late and we had a three hour layover we're we're playing outside right outside. <laughs> the door and uh you know they didn't even do a final call we're sitting right there uh, and the sky just closed the door um oh, i was yeah. an exercise in, in in me not flipping out um but my kids <laughs> they were like you know, they're just processing this and then they're like this means we get to stay in a hotel for another night <laughs> <laughs> thank god for them they uh they kind of got me out of my um my anger nice and quickly got me to realize why well, i get to spend some more time with my family and you know it is what it is so, that but, sounds yeah. like something i would say maybe i've just never lost that that child ability of uh seeing the silver lining and the bright side of things so I'll, I'll try to hold on to that as long as I can, because it sounds like it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I guess an uh, imparting shot here. So, you know, with where we are here in October 2022, 
you know, markets are down quite a bit this year. Um, you know, it's, it, it stinks. I mean, it's part of investing. This is the same reason why we can mm-hmm. expect higher returns in the future and why in, in general, you know, you're compensated more for taking stock market risk than you are by leaving, than leaving your money in cash. Now's really a good time to take a look at your portfolio. And if you have some things that maybe shouldn't be in there, you know, if you do have some more of a concentrated portfolio, if you're not, um, you know, thinking in terms of having a proper plan and having your portfolio aligned to it, focusing on the things that really matter about having the dollars when you need it, playing probabilities, keeping costs low, staying well diversified and being really tax smart in your approach. This is the time that you can make some changes to the positive and move forward in, in a much more prudent fashion. And if you're a taxable investor, because stock prices are down, you know, it's really a good time to go ahead and maybe realize some of those losses and move on and move forward to a better portfolio. I can't think of a better time to get a review than right now when we do have certainly a lot of uh, uncertainty in the future and uh, not knowing which direction things will go, and uh, but also having this opportunity of things being down and, and uh, reallocating our portfolios and making sure that we're on the right track to get to where we need to be. And so if you'd like to have that review of your plan with a member of the True Wealth Design team, you can certainly do that. Go to truewealthdesign.com, click the Are We Right For You button to schedule a 15-minute introductory call with an experienced advisor on the True Wealth team. That's at truewealthdesign.com, or you can call 855-TWD-PLAN. That's 855-893-PLAN. And again, we'll put the contact info and uh, those different ways that you can get in touch in the description of today's show, so you can find that easily as well. Well, Kevin, appreciate the help. Didn't trigger the egg cat alert. I almost did it just for old time's sake, but see if you can come up with a good word uh, to, to, to get us going next episode, okay? I'll do my best, Wall. Appreciate the help, buddy. We appreciate it as well. And uh, thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll see you next time, right back here on Retire Smart. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.